think now it's rolling properly. Okay. Mm. So how it works, you must come closer to me. Because the thing is with this, you gotta be very close. Like here? Mm -hmm. Okay. But I'll hold it. Okay. This is the first recording of, what do you think we should call your story? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know, maybe you, you can, I mean, decide, I'm not sure what Welcome to, to the yeah. Sound Africa podcast. My name is Rose Tierney Peter, and what you are hearing in the background is producer Rasmus Beats talking to a man named Ndalaga. He is originally from Burundi, but now lives in Cape Town, South Africa. Sadly, his story has a current hook, as is the media term for an excuse to tell a story. In April, violence erupted in Burundi after President Nkurunziza launched a campaign to remain in office for a third and unconstitutional term. The violence since then has been worse than anything seen in Burundi since the civil war ended in 2005. This is not the space for an in-depth analysis of the situation, so please seek that out elsewhere. As for the numbers, however, we will give you two. According to UNICEF, more than 200,000 people have fled Burundi this year and more than 6,000 of them are separated or orphaned children. 6,000 children alone and on the run. And this brings me back to Mdalaga because he was in a similar situation more than 20 years ago. This is how he remembers his fearful journey across half the continent. We call his story the boy who didn't die. So that's your name and um, normally in the street when you're doing your work and getting customers you go by the name MD. Yeah, I made a new name for myself in order for people to understand me well. People can't pronounce well my name so I decided to take a, a few letters and made a name AMDY which is the first letter of my name and the other letters of my name, yeah. What's your birthday, MD? I'm, <laughs> good question. I'm not sure when, when, uh, when is my birthday because my parents were not exposed to academical. So before they pass away, they could never tell me how old I was. MD was given his birthday by an official at Home Affairs who looked at his face and chose the year 1985. The 18th of March was the day he entered the office and applied for asylum in South Africa. This happened about 15 years ago, but this is where the journey ends. It begins long before in Burundi, on the coast of Lake Tanganyika in 1994. I used to live with my mother. Uh, she was a single parent. Uh, she happened never to go to school or she didn't have any job, so we depend more in land, you know. Uh, 
so we were very very poor um, I didn't have no shoes I didn't have long pants it's good thanks God it's tropical it was not that cold MD had one biological brother and two half sisters but altogether there were 12 children his biological mother had passed away but he considered her sister who raised him his own mother she had taken in eight children who couldn't be with their own parents they were poor but there were also happy moments, like when she would tell the children stories around the fire at night, or when MD was playing football. And that's what he was doing one day in 1994, when he was around eight or nine years old, and everything changed. I was in the coast of Lake Tanganyika on the shores, praying with my friends. We playing a football, game of football. Yeah, we take a plastic bag and we roll them together because we could not afford a football. We make a round as a soccer ball and we use that as a football playing on the coast. I heard a weird noise. And sound of noise of gun as you hear, boom, 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 and you know. And then from distance I saw like a house burning. I ran home because he to be safe, I have to be close to my mother and everyone in Ozzy home is safe. When I got outside our yard, I saw like a blood drip of blood. In the beginning, I got excited a bit because um, I can't remember us eat a meat. Maybe it's a Christmas time or Easter, you know. Uh, we are not people eating like much red meat or, you know, because we could not afford. And the meat we could eat was our livestock when they slaughtered. There were one male goats who was getting older and I thought maybe they are one which they slew it, you know. But uh, unfortunately that was not the story. As I went follow the blood and he got inside the house, call, and there was no one, no respond. To my surprise, as I got in, in the passage in the house, I just found my mother laying down on the passage, on her pool of blood, busy, I don't know English word, but she was like he suffocated, moving her body. He ran out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. I stood there looking. I'm not sure for how long. Then the next move I made, I went to my mother. I tried to lift up her to for she was laying down, so I want to put her in a position of sitting. I was young, about eight or nine, so she was heavy for me. But when I managed it, the blood was all over covering my clothes, my body. I didn't have no t-shirt, you know. My brother wear my t-shirt, so I didn't have no shirt. I had only pants. <clears throat> so blood covering all over me, and my mother, she had stabbed on the neck and in left breast, underneath left breast. And he, as you're holding her, she tried to talk to me. Uh, the voice was coming on the neck, so I could not hear that, what she tried to say. Um, from there, I was completely bewildered um, as I was asking a world of men and women, why? Why my mother? 
why have to be my mother you know she's the only one i have she's everything to me you know she's a breadwinner she's mother she's everything but now why has to be my mother uh, nothing could make sense there uh, as i stood with her for a while then he, she was moving but he, she became calm she could not move anymore and he, she fixed her eyes on me and the eyes was not moving she was just like looking but there's no any movement i completely still sit with her i'm not sure for 30 minutes or an hour but he holding her when he, i used to move a bit she screamed with pain but she could never scream anymore i couldn't hear any sound i didn't know what to do I put her down to lay down. I thought the best way is to run to my uncle and try to call him to come and see. That was it. I never went back again. I believe she was left there to decompose. I never went back again. MD never found his uncle. Instead, he started running. Barefoot and only wearing pants because his brother was wearing their only shirt. He found and followed other people fleeing the village, walking for days. I was confused, bewildered. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I just follow people as they walk. I just follow and walk, just walk with them. When the one woman, she had a carrying a baby and a big basket on her head. She cared for me for those five days until when we get outside of Congo, my feet were swollen. I didn't have no shoes. There's a one stage which I hit myself on the on the stone, and the, uh, my toe, my nail came off this small one here. This one here. Mm, the, came off the yeah. pinky toe yeah mm-hmm. yeah so but she continue walk with me and wait for me for a while what md didn't know at the time was that the reason his life was turned upside down leaving him alone a young boy barefoot on the way to what then was called Zaire was the civil war in burundi sort of a less famous part of a larger conflict that also led to the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. The conflict is obviously very complicated and this is by no means a complete account, but simply put, it's rooted in an ethnic conflict between the two groups, the Hutu and the Tutsi, who live in Burundi and neighboring Rwanda. And the conflict has roots long before MD was born. After World War I, the Belgium government was mandated by the League of Nations to govern the historically related territories of Rwanda-Urundi, that's largely modern-day Rwanda and Burundi. Both countries were populated both by Hutu and Tutsi, and how different the two groups really are historically is still a contested question among scholars. But what's not contested is that the Belgian administration emphasized whatever difference they could find and favored one group, the Tutsi, in leadership positions in society. 
MD has spent many hours reading about the history of his country and his people. As an orphan, he says, it's been important for him to try to understand where he's coming from. And he has his own theory of why the Belgians decided to favor one group over the other. Belgium, I believe they got uh, two tribes there, uh, Flemish and the Wallon. So one of them counted as superior than the other. So when they came to colonize in our country, also they divide people like that in order to rule them. Because they were minority, they could not be able to govern all the country. So they had to divide people, and while people they were divided, then it could be easier to control them. Finally, in 1962, Burundi became independent and the Belgians left. But the strained relationship between the Hutu and the Tutsi remained. At various points in the three following decades, the situation could be described as open civil war, and at some points, even genocide. In 1993, the first Hutu president of Burundi, Melchior Ndadai, was elected. He took a moderate, cautious approach to government, trying to resolve the deep ethnic divide, while also trying to reduce the Tutsi dominance in the police, army and parts of the economy. He only governed for three months before he was assassinated by Tutsi army extremists. The situation in the country declined quickly as Hutus started rising up and attacking Tutsi. In retribution, the Tutsi army proceeded to round up thousands of Hutu and kill them. Only a few months later, in April 1994, the new Burundian president, Natariyamiya, and his Rwandan colleague, Habiari Mana, both died as the plane was shut down over the Rwandan capital, Kigali. That sparked the beginning of the Rwandan genocide. This also led to escalating violence in Burundi across the border, where thousands of both Hutu and Tutsi were killed. MD himself is characterized as Hutu, but he doesn't believe it means anything. And back then, when he was only a little boy on the run, he knew nothing of the political reasons behind his personal tragedy. All he could think of was his mother's words. Look after your young brother and never ever fight. Never kill if you can't create, you know. If you got the power to create human, then you can kill. But if you cannot create any human, never ever take a human life. Finally, MD ended up in a refugee camp in Zaire, where he found his brother. He doesn't know how his brother got there, and ultimately it doesn't mean much. The time together proved to be short, because before long, rebels attacked the camp. And then in the process, when the rebels came to attack, he was shot. And when he was shot, I fall down unconscious. MD's brother died, and he thinks he only survived because he fainted next to him. The blood from his brother's body led the rebels to believe he was already dead. But when he woke up again, the rebels came back and rounded him and a number of other children up. They were now recruited as child soldiers. I think the oldest will be 15. 
and they take us all and they force us and we had to move with them. Did you know at the time who you were recruited by? No, it was just different people come and beat us up and they just, you know, they are older than us and everything. So I didn't have a time to just try to see who is, you know, I was just following the order and everything until the time we escaped. Along with a group of boys his own age, MD was serving behind the front. As they were too young to fight, they carried food, supplies and ammunition to the front and wounded soldiers back. But MD only had one thing on his mind. Word of my mother was ringing in my head all the time, just run, 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 don't kill, just run. And I knew that if I be there, one day I'm gonna get killed or gonna get killed. I'm gonna get to kill someone. So my mind was just somewhere, somehow I must run. So I never pay attention to anything than looking away to escape. And which I tried three times. Uh, last third time they cut my lips. Uh, this is scar here. My scar is only my lower lips. In the left, right hand side. They pulled it and took bayonets, a gun knife, and pulled it and cut it. And another one is in my right hand, which they cut also close to my wrist. Uh, they cut it, and that was a sign and mark and warning that if we run away again, they'll shoot us. And when they did that, they took five boys who were older than us. They say they are one who was influenced us. They lined them up, and then they took another five boys who were older than us also. They give them gun, and then they said to shoot them, and they did shoot them. And he, thanks God, I was not one of those people who was shot or shoot. After the failed attempts at escape, the boys realized that there was only one way out. The area they were in was heavily guarded on three sides, but one side, the rebels did not bother to post guards. No one, they said, would be so stupid as to try to swim across the river and run into the deep, unknown and dangerous forest. Is this too loud? No, that's all right. That's okay. All right. So um, when you're recording something like this, they they're telling you, you must always ask what the dog is called if there is a dog barking. Because you have to address every sound that's around so that the listener will know if there is a strange sound, why that sound is there. Yeah. So because of that, I'll ask you, now we have a street outside here. Can you uh, say what street it is and, and what are the noises we're hearing on the tape? Is the Harrington Street is quite a busy street. So there's a cars and people walking by and the talking. Uh, so we go till sound of full cars passing by and the uh, people passing by and you can hear those noise as we sit here yeah. but uh, it seemed like we missed some part of the story uh, which i'm able to maybe go back there and the possible you ask me question it'll be very easier for me to get back again to memory and uh, mm-hmm. talk about yeah so in that case where we left off was you were telling me about how you and some other kids escaped from the army where you were carrying supplies 
where you you were or abducted to be a soldier definitely uh, we went in the front line where people were fighting we are killing ammunition and, and yourself like personally do you remember what you were specifically carrying yeah i remember i was carrying a bag of food as uh, dry food like uh, biscuits whatsoever supply like that i was carrying a bag like a backpack i was carrying that and the, at the same time I was carrying medicine and the four guys i remember they were carrying someone who i mean a dead body a corpse of someone which you are coming with you know someone who was shot pass on i can't still remember everything but what i can still remember is some of us uh, were willing to go and some were not you know uh, because it kind of fear if they caught us again what would happen but uh, we thought uh, let's take a chance uh, it was raining the river was a bit swollen and the uh, the water was more like a cray kind of mud you know because it's all and the, it was pretty deep where area which we were but we walked further on where it was a bit shallow kind of you know so uh, one by one we start to cross as we crossing crossing to get to other side as we reach other side um i think i was third from last person behind first the older guys and as we follow them and the other guy was like pulling us up in the other side you could not be able to see clearly what's going on behind the water or under the water because of um the rain season and the water the way it looked like but as we were going out from the rivers we went in the other side as you remember one of the boy was either sweep away with a stream of water or um i'm not sure i can't really tell the um, either if he's a crocodile or is a hippo or whatever i'm not sure he just screamed once and he was gone and then we saw a bit of blood on top <clears throat> and then after that the water is pushing down and then we could not be able to see anything again i mean that was like our first someone to pass on as we we were crossing the river when we go to other side i mean it was very sad for us and everything at same time we were very fearing because now we broke the rules and we know that if we were caught now here we are dead standing on the other side of the river with soldiers that would kill them if they turned back and the unknown frightening forest in front of them the group of 20 some boys now diminished by one decided to enter the forest Surviving by eating fruits, nuts, and whatever else they could find, the boys started walking. But they didn't know where to go, and soon some of them started getting sick. Uh, Defined death, you know, I think he was because of mosquito. I assume now, uh, that time I didn't know what, but I think he was either malaria, diarrhea, uh, uh, cholera. But in the harsh environment, illness wasn't the only threat. Boys died from snake bite. And one day, the group came across a couple of leopard cubs. Because he was got the cubs, and we were walking around those cubs, and he, they screaming, shouting. And then he, as we walk there, uh, the mother aggressively come to protect his cubs. Then he end up with jump on him, and he, as he start to bite him, we turn back and shouting. Then he leave him and run away. When he ran away, we tried to pull him, walk with him, but he could not move that much. Uh, about late, later, after an hour, um, I assume an hour or 
to e breed to death. The group of boys got smaller and smaller, and as his friends slowly died, MD got more and more desperate. Especially because they still didn't know where they were going and often found themselves walking in circles. We don't have a map, there's no road, there's no way that, or even hiking trail that you can see where you're going. Few times we're walking back where we come from and the, um, we find the, our friend which we left there died and he decomposed like five or six body. Uh, swollen, very, very swollen. And the uh, the t-shirt which he was wearing uh, is like moving and he is is like oil, you know, of fat and smelling very bad. I think now that was mag- maggot. MD has no idea how long he was walking in the forest and at one point there were only two boys left. Both of them hoping to die soon as they didn't want to be left alone in the forest. That was point of losing hope. That was point of give up everything. I remember we still talking. Me and my friend, his name was called Isla Bahenda Boniface. Uh, his name meaning uh, the world is lying. The scary things was when you get late night, you know, everything, you know, any forest, any movement of grass or tree, branch moving, you don't know what it is. That is very, very painful, very traumatized, you know, very, you can't sleep, you know, always. Holding each other, you know, and you don't know what's going on. Is a snake, is an animal, what, what it is, you know. It wasn't that desperate situation that one day, in an opening through the thick forest canopy, MD saw something. Long, far away, a mountain. I mean, we could never see any horizon because of trees, I mean trees are old, 300 years maybe plus, you know, because they're very, very old in the thick forest. Then one day when we saw the mountain, it was like a little bit of hope in me, you know, and then I told him we walked toward the mountain. And walk they did, and the landscape changed from thick forest to open plain. Soon they saw smoke in the distance, and they walked into a village. was unnaturally quiet there because there was a war in the area and people stayed inside. But there were also aid workers around. MD saw a man he recognized from the first refugee camp in Kalimia. A tall guy from Doctors Without Borders who gave them $200 and helped them get on a truck to Zambia as the refugee camp suffered through several attacks. The two children then went on a journey, familiar to thousands of people at the time. They spent months on the road and in refugee camps in Zambia, Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Here MD pretended to be mute, so nobody would find out he didn't speak the language. They were traveling with other refugees and in the capital Maputo they organized transport with people specializing in crossing the border to South Africa. They took us a place called Machipanda. And then when we got there, they put us in the house. We stay there and late night, say about 12, we start to cross the border via Kruger National Park, which is um, very dangerous because lion, snake, leopards, elephants, everything. 
uh, walking freely there, you know. But by God's grace, we didn't manage to meet any either one of them. The next morning, we are in the South African side, and when we got in South African side, we found another bag because we pay them, which will take us from the area which we were in the Kruger Park to area called Komat Port. And when we got there, we pay another money. They took us up to a place called Nelly Street. And when we got there, um, the people we were traveling with, Adam and Kazadi, they took, they told us to sit there and they, we must give them money. They're going to organize transport to go to Johannesburg. And that was the last time we saw them. And that was the first day MD spent in South Africa. He's now been here more than 15 years. As an orphan and a refugee, MD says life in South Africa hasn't always been easy. He struggled with past trauma, depression and addiction, but also managed to pass his matric without ever attending regular classes. And he's now a fully licensed plumber. At the moment he's working construction in Cape Town, hoping to finish his correspondence degree in psychology. Like many of the thousands of other refugees arriving in South Africa every year, MD doesn't think he'll be able to go home anytime soon. I think this will become my second home. So I'm not looking forward to say to go back like now or tomorrow. I'm hoping to establish myself here. And he wanted to go back for good. But at the moment, I can't see that. Yeah. What would you do if you went back to Burundi? I hope I establish myself well here um, so I can be able to go to live my dream is if I can be able to establish like a orphanage or child care kind of um, I'll be quite happy that is kind of my dream being often at a very young age being alone I believe that there's still a, uh, children who are going through that and the most of them working with a breeding wound which never be healed yet. And if I can be there for one or two, I think I'll die with a smile. Let's go. Okay, so I was thinking maybe you can, um, while I drive, you can just uh, explain where we're going. Okay. Okay, uh, at the moment we're living in Crove uh, Street, Upper Crove. We're going to um, Signal Hill or bottom of Table Mountain, is where we're going to record our story. We had a good day today, we had a lunch together, we play a golf, we shoot uh, some balls. Though I was more like a baseball player than a golf player, but I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> and the, how did you feel? Yeah, no, it was really fun. Hey? I, I don't know how to play golf, but um, I think we made a bit progress. So maybe another day we can go again and, uh, and build on what we learned today. Certainly, they say uh, uh, practice, practice make perfect. So yeah, hopefully maybe more practice will be you will become more like a Roy McRoy. Yes, that's I think that, that's what we're going for. At the moment we are up now, we are up the hill. 
You've been listening to the Sound Africa podcast, The Boy Who Didn't Die. This episode was produced and edited by Rasmus Beats with the help of Nick Burning, and I'm Rose Tieni Peter. If you like what you heard, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about us. Are you a great storyteller, a journalist, or the girl with the best stories in the bar? We can help you turn that story into a podcast. To start the conversation, visit us on Facebook or on our website, soundafrica.org. Thanks for listening.